Welcome to a special edition of BioCentury This Week. I'm Jeff Cranmer, Executive Editor of BioCentury, and I'm joined by... Steve Usden, Washington Editor. Simone Fishburne, Editor-in-Chief. Selena Koch, Executive Editor. Last week, Steve, you wrote two commentaries about the state of FDA's advisory committee meetings and what needs to be done to fix them. They've gotten a lot of attention. In a nutshell, Steve, what were they about? Basically, I concluded after having watched many, many, many adcoms over the years that the system's broken. That doesn't mean that adcoms aren't important. On the contrary, I wrote about it because I think they are very important. And of course, not all of the meetings are bad, but I think that none of them live up to their potential. They've essentially become high stakes box ticking events. I concluded that there's three things wrong with them. The wrong people are on the committees, meetings are held at the wrong times, and the committees are usually asked the wrong questions. So Steve, any particular adcoms come to mind when you're talking about this? I realize you are talking about something structural, so it's not a single one, but give us a few examples of you know, where you think it's fallen down. And Well, I, I, I think that the, uh, the first adcom for the COVID mRNA vaccines, for example, really failed to do what it needed to do. It was structured in a way so that there was no discussion among the people who were on the panel. The vast majority of the time was spent basically going through PowerPoint presentations of what was in the materials that all of the committee members had been given. And they just took a vote at the end and made some very brief comments. It was a missed opportunity. It was a missed opportunity to inform the public and to get the public on board about both the importance of these vaccines and all of the care that had gone into testing them and to bring people along with the data. There were people on that committee intentionally who were there who were supposed to be able to communicate with, uh, with different audiences, with different, different sectors of the American population. And it would have been really important for them to talk. There was a, um, a pediatrician, Paul Offit. He could have talked about the importance at that time of adults taking the vaccines for the health of, of children. There were some very prominent African-American scientists on there. They could have talked about the importance of the vaccine for their community. None of that really happened. There have been other adcoms that I've been to, and everybody who's watched a lot of adcoms has seen this, where the committee members are completely baffled by what the question that FDA asks them really means. And after they vote, when they explain their votes, there are people who agree with each other who vote in opposite ways on a question because they interpret it to mean completely different things. Another issue that's come up in recent adcoms that I've watched, I cover CNS for BioCentury, so I listened to the Aduhelm adcom and the recent one on Amelix's ALS therapy, um, was the huge amount of time allocated to public comments. So in the adcom, the committee members are asked to think about these analytical issues. All the data are in, they've been analyzed. We have the big picture, but they spend a really big proportion of their time listening to emotional appeals from a subset of patients who happen to be in the treatment arm and felt like they got some benefit, right? So nobody who was in the placebo arm who was convinced for a period of time that they were receiving some benefit and later found out they weren't, none of them show up to give antidotes. Um, so it, you know, the committee members are asked to be thinking about statistics and appropriateness of various measures. And, and then they have to listen to all of this emotional content. 
Well, that's really interesting. So one of the things that I wrote about in the, in the commentary also were comments from Patricia Cavazzoni, the director of CEDAR, who said that she finds the public comment period of the adcoms troublesome. She thinks that they do inject more emotion into it than they should. And another thing that I noted in the commentary is that there are big questions about the conflicts of interest among the people who testify at this in the open public session. They're asked whether they've been paid to go there, whether their expenses have been paid, and they almost always say that they haven't. But there isn't any real probing of what their financial connections are. I've written about advisory committee meetings where all of the people who testify in the public session say that they have no financial ties to the companies. And then when you go back and look at it, you can see that their organizations have received donations and substantial donations from companies whose products are being considered at the meeting or who have competing products. So obviously, many people are going to say there has to be a forum in which patients can have their voice and be heard. And Selena's point is well taken that you often aren't hearing about patients on the placebo arm. So that is skewed. But are you basically saying that the whole, not that patients shouldn't be heard, but that the whole idea of what you're trying to get out of these meetings should be different and patients should have a voice? Or are you just saying that there's a different forum in which they should be heard? Both. I think that absolutely, I think it's essential that patients' voices should be heard. I think they should be heard early in the development process and, and, and throughout, but especially early when it's possible to change things like the endpoints, the criteria for evaluating w- whether a product is actually benefiting people, the amount of risk that patients are willing to take. Those are things that can and should be discussed early in the process, either at advisory committee meetings or at other kinds of meetings, um, the patient-focused um, drug development meetings, perhaps through the processes that I describe in the, in the other commentary, collaborative communities that FDA has created for devices that I think should be extended to drugs and biologics. So I'm certainly not saying that patients aren't an essential part of the process. I'm questioning whether having them play a big role at the last minute, right before FDA is going to make a decision, and then doing it in an unorganized way where you don't really know the context of who these patients are, how they've been selected, and, and so on. I, I think that's what's problematic. Yeah, and they're not asked. So when you do do it at that end stage, perhaps they could be asked a very specific question. You know, they each just come up and they tell their personal story, say whatever they want to say. But yeah, there's a level of disorganization about it. I mean, it, it, it can be very valuable for FDA and for advisory committee members to hear from patients who can say that, for example, an adverse event, a toxicity that's come up in a trial actually is extremely important to them and that a drug that has it or a drug that doesn't have it, that that's something that they really should pay attention to. Or that a benefit from a drug that clinicians may or may not find important you know, really is important to patients or really isn't important to patients. Those things are really, really vital for for FDA and for advisors to hear. But there's so much noise uh, around these advisory committee meetings that those messages don't come through in a clear way. To the other issue that you raised, which I think is a really important one, which is how much expertise the people on the committee have. I should actually flip that the other way and say the failure to 
be able to have people with the real expertise because they have industry ties or because they may not be completely impartial. And the, the problem there, of course, I think that you're saying is that it's virtually impossible to find people often, you know, because the experts are the ones who are doing the studies. So, you know, is that something that is in FDA's hands to fix? Is that something Congress needs? Yeah, I think, no, I think it is something that FDA could do. Look, nobody wants people on the committees who have a direct financial interest in the outcome of the of the meeting. If a, if a person owns stock in the company that has got a product there or in their direct competitor, they shouldn't be on the panel. That's not really at issue. The problem is, is that the conflict of interest- well, Wait, let of, me stop that because it depends on what the panel's goal is. I mean, it, if the- panel is really adjudicating on whether this product should be approved, then no, they shouldn't be. But if you change the whole goal of the panel, does that not you know, influence the equation? I, I still think that you don't want to have anybody on the panel who has a direct financial stake in the outcome of the discussions. But the problem is, is that FDA has interpreted the conflict of interest rules much more broadly. So tangential financial relationships with companies or with competing companies, sometimes relationships that aren't even direct for the person who's who's on the panel, but the academic institution that they work at are enough to rule out somebody participating in an advisory committee meeting. And I think those are the kinds of things that really preclude getting the expertise that's needed, again, especially for rare diseases. And rare diseases make up a high percentage of the products that FDA considers, and especially, and also those ones that are sometimes difficult for them to make decisions about. So they need advice from advisory committees. So just to clarify, Steve, and I completely agree with you, by the way, but ju just to clarify, is this an issue that you think is in FDA's hands, but they sort of bend to public pressure and perception in, in where they draw the line for COI, conflict of interest, or does it actually require better legislation? No, it doesn't require legislation. It's something that FDA could do on its own. It, it would be difficult to do on its own because it's going to be criticized heavily for it. There, there are people who are convinced that even the most distant or slight tie to industry indelibly taints an individual's thinking. Something else that I didn't get into in the, in the commentary, but it's something to think about, is the idea that there are intellectual conflicts of interest in addition to financial conflicts of interest, and those don't get taken into account. So these very slight financial connections with industry are exaggerated in importance, whereas intellectual conflicts of interest, people going into these meetings with a kind of an ideology or a set of beliefs that are going to determine how they're going to vote are often not even considered. As Simone said, this is a lot to unpack. I just want to back up and give a quick overview of what the consequences are here. Steve, in your commentary, which we published last week, you wrote, advisory committees are achieving the opposite of their intended missions. The dysfunction erodes confidence in regulatory decisions, fuels accusations of regulatory capture, introduces unpredictability at the end of what we all know is a very long and expensive product development process, and it limits FDA's ability to keep up with rapidly advancing science and understand the needs of patients. Steve, where have you seen this happening? Are there specific panels? Well, the, the, um, Jeff, the, the, the kind of the poster child for this 
as with a lot of the problems that um, have come up at FDA recently, um, is Adjuhelm. So the Adjuhelm panel, I think, exhibited all three of what I call the three wrongs. The wrong people were on the committee. They didn't have experts in Alzheimer's um, drug development on the committee. It was held at the wrong time. Look, there should have been a meeting a, a year before that to talk about what the appropriate endpoints are for Alzheimer's drugs, whether amyloid plaque clearance should be considered an endpoint that could support accelerated approval. If they'd done that and they'd achieved consensus on that a year earlier, the committee meeting would have had one less contention to deal with. And the committee was asked the wrong questions. You know, the most obvious one, of course, that should have been asked was around um, accelerated approval, which wasn't even on the table at the committee meeting. That's right. But when you talk about Alzheimer's experts not being on the panel, earlier you had said that we need to take into careful consideration intellectual conflicts of interest. That happens to be a situation where pretty much all the big players in industry who have worked on Alzheimer's almost have a religious dedication to amyloid as, as key to the disease. And many um, academics as well kind of staked their career on it, right? Their whole reputations. So how do you get the right expertise on there while avoiding those conflicts of interest? Well, I, I think part of it is by understanding what the purpose of the committee is. It's to give advice. It's not to make the decision at the end of the day. So, you know, at the end of the day, FDA is going to have to make the hard decision. So you can have people on the panel who are true believers in, for example, in the amyloid hypothesis. You can have people on the panel who are absolutely uh, opposed to it, and then they can argue it out. I mean, the best would be if they could achieve consensus on it. If they can't, at least they can articulate the positions in a clear way and at the end of the day, create a little bit more insight and help for FDA in making its decision. Now, Steve, of course, you didn't only just talk about the problems, you talked about some solutions. You wrote two editor's commentaries. What is one of the solutions that you pointed out? So I really like this idea of collaborative communities. It's something that the Center for Drugs and Radiological Health, CDRH, has embraced as a model for obtaining external input and developing consensus on pre-competitive issues. It sidesteps a lot of the barriers that FDA's advisory committees are subject to. Collaborative communities are self-organized forums that bring private and public sector members together to solve problems that individual entities or sectors can't address alone. Rather than meeting sporadically like advisory committees, they meet often, they evolve over time, and they, they organize themselves and they can invite FDA to participate. Because FDA doesn't have control over how the communities operate and they don't provide formal advice to the agency, they're not subject to the Federal Advisory Committee Act and they have a lot more freedom to operate. That sounds like a really good idea, Steve. Are there any other solutions that you throw out there? Well, okay, so I talked about changing the conflict of interest guidelines so that so that FDA can get the expertise that it needs on the panels. I think the idea of having meetings where they get external scientific, medical, and patient advice early in the process and not necessarily tied to specific applications is a good idea. That can either be through advisory committee meetings or it can be through meetings that are organized by neutral third parties. You know, there are, there are think tanks, there are medical societies, there are patient advocacy groups that have done this. Friends of Cancer Research, for example, has played major roles in achieving consensus on 
clinical trial designs, surrogate endpoints, and other topics related to cancer. The um, American Society of Hematology played a, a really big role in achieving medical consensus around sickle cell endpoints, and that was really important in laying the foundation for the approval of Global Therapeutics for Sickle Cell Drug, which is a disease-modifying drug. It's a really important drug, but it, it used a novel endpoint. And rather than waiting until the end of the process and having an advisory committee meeting two weeks before the PDUFA date, FDA organized workshops and meetings with the American Society of Hematology, ASH, where they talked about this endpoint. The medical community came to a consensus around it. And then when it was time to consider the application from Global Blood Therapeutics, that issue had been resolved. And that was really important in getting that drug approved and out there to patients. So then your ultimate vision then for advisory committees, do you think there would just be far fewer of them? Because a lot of the issues that they leave to the end now would be, they build consensus around along the way, or do you think there should be more of them, but they should just be organized a different way, but it just gives like a final chance for public discussion of the issues that have already been pretty much worked out. Yeah, no, I think that there should be more of them. In the commentary they wrote, and I wrote that FDA has only, only held advisory committees for 6% of the new drugs that were approved in, I think, in 2021. It should be more than that, but they should be a continuing process. It shouldn't be considered like a, a trial at the end of the process where the advisory committee is a jury and FDA is the prosecutor and the company is the defendant. It's not an adversarial proceeding. What the goal of all of this is to do what's the best thing for patients. I don't think that the best thing for patients is to treat it like an adversarial proceeding at the end of the product development cycle. I think the best thing for patients is to have the whole thing much more collaborative and to have communication that's going on from the earliest stages of development all the way through to the end so that FDA can get the external advice it needs and the public can see what's going on, understand it, and where appropriate, have input. Excellent, Steve. Well, next up on FDA's advisory committee docket, it's an important one. Uh, FDA's Cellular Tissue and Gene Therapy Advisory Panel is going to meet this week to discuss a pair of gene therapy BLAs from Bluebird that could have a big impact on the company's future and also on the broader development of lentiviral vector-based gene therapies. So in a nutshell, this really symbolizes how important these meetings are. For one company, it could determine its next steps, but it also is going to speak to what other companies in the space should do. So we'll be following that one. Yeah, it's late. it's late in Bluebird's process, but if you think about it as shaping the process for the next ones, it's very early in that process. Yeah. Yeah. And it does seem like FDA is using it as a platform just to talk about the potential risk of lentiviruses and, and to give some guidance to other companies on what they should do, because this particular therapy, the one tomorrow for beta thalassemia, has not been associated with cancers due to the vector, right? But others have. And so it's more of a broad-ranging discussion on the, the technology in general. All right, Steve, final word? Read my commentary. Get back to me. Let me know what you think about them. They're out there on BioCentury's website. They're accessible to non-subscribers. And I think 
this is something that's worth having a an ongoing conversation about. Yeah, it it definitely does, and uh, you know, it it gets to the heart of drug development and also patient involvement. And after all, patients are the customers for these biotech drugs. So, good stuff, Steve, Selena, Simone. Thanks for joining in. All of BioCentury's podcasts are available on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple, and Google. Kendall Square Orchestra provides the music for our podcasts. The group connects science and technology professionals and other members of the greater Boston community to collaborate, innovate, and inspire through music while supporting causes related to healthcare and education.